Uh, last week, pastor, I should, well, he is pastor because he's an elder. Uh, Scott took us through chapter 2. Tonight we'll be in chapter 3. And uh, I do want to go back and just look at a couple things quickly uh, in chapter 2. Again, just kind of a review. Uh, obviously, chapter 2 was about a couple things in particular that stand out. One is how God raised up Esther uh, to be queen. And then secondly, how uh, God used Mordecai in a unique way. And of course, Mordecai is the cousin of Esther who raised her. And so he's considerably, he's an, he's an older cousin. And, uh, but God used him. So here we have a book, as we said in week one, a book where God's never mentioned in the whole book. Yet, everywhere all through this book, it's, you see the hand of God leading and guiding and, and providing. And uh, that's what he did. He gave Esther favor. That word comes up a lot throughout the entire book. He gave her favor as she came up and, uh, and became queen. He gave uh, Mordecai insight, understanding of things. So he placed Mordecai at the gate at the right moment when they were conspiring to kill the king, a couple eunuchs, and, uh, and how Mordecai took that information to, to uh, Esther, and Esther related it to the king. And, and, and then, of course, I think one of the takeaways that really helps us as we go forward is to know that the king remembered that. It was recorded in his register what this man Mordecai did for him. So, good stuff. Um, there is a relationship that's going to show up here tonight between Mordecai and this other man who his name is Haman, the Agagite. And it, there's, a, there's a story behind it. And we're going to take time to go back and look at that story. And it's actually in 1 Samuel that we'll find it. So tonight's going to be an interesting time. Does anybody have any questions so far out of the study of the book of Esther? Any questions that you might have that we could maybe take a moment and listen to? And, and if we can, answer. And if not, go back, look for the answer in the Bible, and then come back to you. Anything? Okay, you're a, you're a very compliant bunch tonight. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, after the day that I've had, it was a full day, I, I like compliance in the evening. That's nice. <laughs> okay, so let's go ahead and get started with prayer. Lord, tonight as we open the Word of God, we're thankful that uh, Vero Bible Fellowship, you started this fellowship with the whole intent of focusing on the simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And uh, that's 2 Corinthians 11.3, and we're thankful for that because it, 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 it removes all the distractions. It removes all the things that we could do that look like we ought to be doing, but we get away from what we must do, and that is the study of the Word of God. That is the worship of the one true God, which happens in so many different ways. Worship occurs... Father, before you in prayer, like we're doing right now. Worship occurs in the study of the Word. 
Worship occurs as we sing songs together, hymns and songs and psalms and spiritual songs. Uh, worship happens <coughs> in so many ways, but that's the focus of your church. And I pray that tonight you would be edified by what the church is doing and the church would be edified because we are making this thing about you and about your word and we're growing in the admonition of the Lord. And we just give you thanks and praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts out chapter 3 just like he does in chapter 2 after these things. So after what things? As I just said to you, after... Uh, Esther's rise to the throne took place after Mordecai uncovered a plot to kill the king, uh, after God placed people in right positions and gave favor where favor was needed, after God worked underneath it all, con controlling it, orchestrating it. I think the takeaway from chapter 2 and chapter 1 is how even when things look like they're blowing up, even when you can't make sense out of something happening in your life, the takeaway from this book is God is at work. You, you, God's not at work. Listen, please understand. He's not at work simply because you can see his work. He's at work when you can't see it where all you have is faith in God, to trust God. God's always at work. He's always about His purposes, His plans, that really He established from the foundation of the world. When God lays down a plan, uh, it's going to be carried out. That's why the scripture says, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's plan prevails you can trust that whatever God's plan to do, it's going to happen. Why? Because that plan went through the filtering process of the counsel of his will. He has all the information, all of it, past, present, and future, when he makes any directive, any decision. He's not in the dark. You and I live most of the time in the dark. I was thinking about this. I wonder what percentage we are aware of the times that God has moved in our lives. I'll bet the percentage is really low. Like maybe 1% that you're aware of. There is so much that God is doing that includes you that you never even think about. You don't even know about it. That's how active, that's how real God is in our lives. I, I, wouldn't it be wonderful if when you get to heaven as a believer, and then God says, hey, come over here, come, in, come into this room, and he shows you a video of your whole life with his hand involved. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Ladies, that guy that you were dating that you just thought was the world and you loved him so much and your mother, your father were saying, mm, mm, mm. and your friends were like, what are you doing? And you're just so into it. And somehow, some way, you didn't end up with that guy. And in heaven, God goes, hey, you ought to see the playback on that one. 
what I did in order to keep, to avert you from, from tr trouble. No, I mean, that's, that's kind of a silly way to look at it, but I, I really do believe God's that much in control of everything. And, and again, it's not just the successful things that he's in. The painful, harsh, the terribly uncomfortable things. He knows all about them. And oftentimes, he's in the smack dab in the middle of it. And even sometimes, scripturally, he's behind it. He caused it. He did cause Jesus to be put on the cross. That was not the work of the Hebrews. It was not the work of the Romans. It was God's work. It pleased the Father to crucify the Son. Bottom line. And God knew that plan from before the first person was ever created, before Adam ever existed. God already knew that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, would be the sacrificial lamb. That's how much God knows everything, okay? So if you leave tonight right now, if you just got up and walked out, please don't. But you could, because what I just gave you, you can live on. If you just take what we've learned just in the first three words, you, you can live on that this week. If you're worried, if you're fretting, if you're stressed out, and we all experience all of that, but if you just take time to stop and think about God's role in your life, in that circumstance, in whatever condition is playing out, it eases the tension. It settles your spirit. That's why the Bible says that he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. These are scriptures, there's so many scriptures like that too. But those scriptures are not just there because they sound good. They actually are part of the truth, the everlasting, eternal truth of God. We just don't appropriate it very well at times. And we end up in stress. We end up in a burden. We end up in a trial. We end up with fear, uh, uh, become anxious. All these things are byproducts of not turning it over to the Lord. And I'm not saying that by turning it over to the Lord, it gets easier. That's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel basically says that if you'll just give more money, man, God's going to just put you on a, on a go ahead and buckle up because you're going on a rocket ride with God. He's going to provide everything you ever wanted and just bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. Well, God doesn't bless because of how much I give. God blesses because I need it. I need the blessing. And so that's why I tune in. That's why I, I'm obedient. So anyway, that's verse 1, after these things. After these things, King Aswerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Homindatha, and advanced him and sent his throne, or set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So we have a turning now in this story where before it was about Esther's rise, it was about Mordecai and how much she trusted Mordecai uh, and respected Mordecai, her cousin, and so much to the point that she went and shared with the king what Mordecai came up with, which if that was just a lie, the king might have taken a whole different position on that whole thing. 
Uh, and, and now, all of a sudden, we shift, and now it, it's a new, there's a new character on the scene, Haman, okay? And he is so close to, to the king that he's above all other members of the royal court. He is the, he's the second guy. He's next to the king. Anything he says goes. When he walks by, you bow down before him. That's how much of a big deal he is in that Persian empire. Okay? He was advanced and was set uh, his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, there are times where God advances wicked people. How many of you think that's true? How many of you know that to be true? <laughs> he does. God himself advances ungodly, wicked, at times base, reprobate people. He gives them authority. He gives them power. He's done it so many times before. In the Bible, throughout the Bible, he did that. He advanced people who were wicked. But always for his purposes. And you say, well, what, that's not fair that God would do that because that means while that evil person ruled, people suffered under him. Many lost their lives simply because God raised him up and gave him that position. That's very true. But those who know the Lord, you can't find greater gain than death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Look at anyone who out of faithfulness to God and yet God allowed them to die in their situation. And it seems like where does God's heartless? What's he doing? It's so wrong. Why don't you ask them now? They're in heaven. Why don't you ask them how wrong and how unfair God is. Do you understand that those of our brethren, brothers and sisters who know the Lord, who die and go to heaven, do you know, do you understand they wouldn't come back to see the grandson's wedding? They wouldn't come back for any reason. They would be leaving the greatest, best that God provides for them to come back to something that is under the fallen creation. Are you serious? You're putting a whole lot more stock in your ability to please them than you really have. I'm just telling you, they're very happy with where they are. They're not worried about coming back. Amen? So, even in the worst case scenario, when you know the Lord, whether you're under a good king or a lousy king, whether you're under a good governor or a lousy governor, it makes no, no difference. I'm going to serve the Lord in any situation. And if I die, I get to live. <laughs> that's when you live, by the way, that's when you live your best life. Your best life is not now, as the book says, that Joel Osteen wrote, in case you're not following me. He actually wrote a book and said, your best life now. No. If this is the best, that means when I die, I go to hell. That's the only way 
that this would be the best. No, the best life is yet to be lived. Amen? You think about that. That makes me hunger for heaven. Not to leave early. I want to be here a long time, okay? But that's how much I believe that God loves me. And even in difficult situations, God still loves me. And so this guy's been raised up. And there's something behind all of this. Um, the king promoted this ungodly man. And this man, Haman, was a descendant of Agag. He's an Agagite. Who's Agag? Remember the name Agag from the Bible? King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites in the Old Testament. And, and who are the Amalekites? Listen to this. The arch enemy of Israel. Of all the peoples that God told the Israelites to take out of the land, the promised land, the Amalekites were the worst. They hated Israel. And their king, Agag, this guy, Haman, is related to. Now, take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 17. You can't have a study in the Word of God unless you allow the Scripture itself to present and interpret itself, right? It's not for us to, you know, take whatever we believe the, the Scripture is saying and walk away. No, we need to figure out what the Bible says. So if you go to Ezekiel 17, verse 14... I'm sorry, Exodus, rather. Hey, I was just seeing if you were listening. I, I wish I could say that. Um, Exodus 17, 14. Now we come to a very interesting story. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, so this is going back to the beginning, right? Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. So Joshua is going to be the, the next leader of Israel. Moses is still the leader of Israel. Joshua is under him. And he's saying, get in his ear. Here's Joshua looking that way. Joshua, listen to what I'm saying. I mean, that's God's going to give him this word that must be recited, not just spoken once. Keep saying it to Joshua, okay? And he says uh, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That's how God feels about the Amalekites. I want to utterly blot them out. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. Uh, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This was spoken long before there was a king over Israel. Okay? Now, let's go back to our text, and then we're going we're to come back to the Old Testament in just a few moments and look at Samuel. After these things, King Asuerus uh, promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Medeth, the uh, advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So we don't know why 
Doesn't make sense on the surface why this guy named Haman comes up out of nowhere, and now he's second in command, and the king says, I want you to bow down before him. I can promise you that the king didn't understand all of it. So where did that come from? The Lord. The Lord put Haman in the position he's in. But Mordecai, a Jew, did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And that's what a transgression is. A transgression is when you break the law. And that's what he's doing. The law's been decreed by the king, and you're not bowing down. And now some commentaries take this position that there's this eternal struggle between, not eternal, but it feels that way, between the Benjaminites and the uh, uh, Amalekites. And by the way, Mordecai is a Benjaminite, which is of the tribe of King Saul, the first king of Israel. And this is where that story comes in. I don't believe that's the case. At this point, I, don't, I just don't believe that that's why uh, uh, Mordecai doesn't bow down, because he has this internal feud with the Amalekites. I don't think that's it. I really do believe it's because he's a Jew, and you do not pay homage to anyone but God. Because when they kept asking him, and not just once, but they came to him week after week, day after day, it says, he gave the same answer. I'm a Jew. Now remember, Daniel, when he was under Nebuchadnezzar, a very pagan king, Daniel would pray toward Jerusalem. Um, that's what I think is happening here. I think you have a, you have a Jew who remembers not to pay homage to anybody on this earth except to God. And so when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they tried to convince him, you've got to do it. He wouldn't listen to that. He held, his, he held his, his own against them. He knew what he believed, and he's going to stand on that. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Filled with fury because he wouldn't bow down. Now that's interesting too. Because when you go back to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it says that suddenly he was filled with fury. And he said, make the fire seven times hotter for these three Hebrew boys. The, the connotation, and many scholars agree, that God allowed Satan to fill him to put those boys in the fire. And he made it seven times hotter. Okay? Um, and the story here, I believe God allowed a demonic spirit to control uh, Haman. And he was infuriated that this man, who he just learns as a Jew, will not bow down and worship him. 
but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hasuerus, they cast pur, which is lots, and before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Okay? That would be March in our calendar. The, the, their calendar began in April, so that's the twelfth month, that would be uh, March. So Haman is wanting to set a day for the extermination of the Jews all of a sudden. He really wants to lay hands on not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. Again, I think Satan is playing a part in this because Satan knows what God had said about the Amalekites. They were a thorn in the side of the Jews. And so now all of a sudden, there's an opportunity for a man who's been raised up into power to literally, in one day, exterminate all the Jews. In history, there have already been people who have returned out of exile to Jerusalem and Judah. And they are now wanting to begin working on different things, namely the temple, restoring it. So this is a king who had precedent over Judah. So he could easily send forces to Judah and take out the Jews there in the neighboring lands. I mean, this, this, this Haman is so evil, so corrupt, so wicked, he wants every Jew exterminated. And he wants to try and do it all in the same day. Okay? Think about that. This is pretty wicked. Now, before we go any further, let's go back and spend a little time understanding a little bit more about this Agag thing. I, I want to take you back... Remember the story when Samuel came to King Saul and he, he, he said, God wants you to go down and smite Amalek, okay? And he, this is what he said in the text, and utterly destroy them, which is what he told Moses to tell Joshua. Now he's telling the king, Saul, go down, utterly destroy them. By the way, again, go down, meaning Jerusalem is on a mountain. It's built on the Temple Mount. That's where the temple is. Anywhere you go, you're going to go down in order to go wherever. That's why it's not, it's not uh, trying to give you direction north, south, east, west. It's simply telling you that they're coming, he's coming from Jerusalem and he's going to go and take out the Amalekites. Now, what's interesting about the Amalekites? The Amalekites are a type of our flesh. In the Old Testament, where you hear stories of the Amalekites, the Bible wants you to think of them as your own flesh, as opposed to your spirit. It's just a type. It's a type of the flesh. Okay? So Saul went down, and uh, he uh, fought against the Amalekites, and God gave him favor and he literally destroyed them, except he didn't take them all out. He saved the choices of their animals and livestock. He also saved the king, which means, most uh, scholars believe, it also meant he saved the king's court. 
makes no sense to let the king live, but not let his family live. So he comes back, the king, with Saul. The family members stay. Okay? So there's still Amalekites out there. He comes back, and it's Samuel who goes out to meet him. And here's what he says to Samuel. As the Lord liveth, I have done all that God has told me to do. <laughs> Lie. Uh, Samuel said, if you did all that God told you to do, why do I hear sheep? Why do I hear cows? Why do I hear goats? And his response was, oh, well, no, we saved the choicest of all the animals for the worship of God. We would offer them in sacrifice to God. He's doing this noble thing for God, trying to completely gloss over his disobedience before God. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever done that? I have. I gloss over my own sin and try to make it look like what I did was for the right reason. You can't commit acts of evil and you can't do wrong and ever end up right. Wrong never equals right. Right equals right. Wrong equals wrong. And, I mean, you can't spell it any more clearly than that, and that's exactly what he's saying to him. Uh, so, take your Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter 15. Let's look at verse 22. So, he's just told Samuel, he's given this story of how wonderful he is because he did everything the king asked him to do and 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 i saved the animals for god i i kept the animals to worship god well why did you keep agag the king he hadn't gotten there yet and and so first samuel chapter 15 verse 22 and samuel said has the lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the lord are you telling me that God will overlook your disobedience because you're making a sacrifice to God? Let me put it to you another way. Jesus gets involved in this. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if you are getting ready to go to the altar and make an offering to the Lord, you're going to worship the Lord. And then all of a sudden you remember that you have ought with your brother. Or, in Matthew 5, or you remember that your brother has ought with you. You're not off the hook just because they didn't come to you first. Either way, you remember you have ought. We're not right. Our relationship's not right. There's reconciliation that needs to happen. Now listen, listen. This is what Jesus said. Get up. Stop acting so spiritual. I don't want your sacrifice. God doesn't want your sacrifice when you're hiding in your heart disobedience. You're not right with your brother. Get up, leave your offering, and go and make it right with your brother. Then return and worship the Lord. Don't worship the Lord with an impure heart when you know that what you've done is wrong and you're trying to cover it up just by going to church, cover it up just by 
you know, acting so spiritual. This is, this is, this hits close to home, does it not? It, it hits close to me. And that, that's what he's saying to him. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, listen to what he says. Here, here's the truth, uh, King Saul. Uh, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion, now he goes into what you did. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. When you disobey God and you cover it up trying to look like you're so spiritual and you're so right with God, God knows you're not right. I don't care how many people sitting in the room think you're spiritual. It doesn't matter. God knows you're not spiritual. Now look, folks, I'm not trying to lay you under a heavy load where you're walking out of here tonight with total guilt and shame and you have no way out from under it. That would never be God's call, God's desire for you. God wants to reveal to us these sinful tactics so that we can come to him immediately and say, Father, I was confronted tonight with the truth. Your word is truth, and I am sorry for disobeying your word. And tonight, fresh and new, the Holy Spirit convicted me of how I've participated in this type of sin. Do you know that when you confess that before God with a sincere heart, God immediately forgives you? Now, here's the thing. Don't think just because he forgives you that you're off the hook. Now go to the person that you still have issue with. Oh, yeah. Uh, he said to obey is greater than sacrifice um, and to listen than the fat of rams. Mm -hmm. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. That's what cost Saul his kingship disobedience, rebellion against the Lord. And he was coming back home and the people were probably cheering him because of the victory in battle. And he's got the king Agag, he's walking back with him. Look, we've got the king of the Amalekites and look at all the choice animals that he brought back. Those are nicer than a lot of ours. And, and he's gonna make this great sacrifice to God. Oh, he's an awesome, he's a wonderful king. God said, you're no longer king. Care what the people think. You're not my king because there's rebellion in your heart. And it's just like divination. The fact that you did what you did, it's like idolatry. Pretty strong words, wouldn't you say? You've rejected the word of the Lord and he has rejected you. You don't reject the truth of God's word. God wants you to live by the word. And when you fail to live by the word, you need to... You need to, in the old times, you know, have sackcloth and ashes. In, in our day, you need to repent. Come clean. So that days of refreshing might return to you in the presence of God. Because if you let those things build up that you're hiding, the little acts of disobedience that you hide under this, this veneer of righteousness and looking the part, at some point... You don't even feel the conviction of the Spirit any longer. Because you're so used to the sin. You've gotten used to the dark. If we 
tonight, you know, it's going to be dark outside fairly soon. And after it falls dark outside, guess what? We're still in the light. But if we had somebody or a, or a device that could reduce the grade of light in this room at such a slow pace that you didn't notice it, instead of just taking the dimmer and doing that, it's such a slow dim. You and I would go right on and drink coffee and have fellowship and sit back and tell our stories and open the Bible, and we would not know when it's dark. We've gotten used to the dark. That's what happens. That's what, that's, this is where King Saul lives, by the way. Okay? So because of disobedience, uh, not utterly destroying the Amalekites, and saving King Agag. And when he came and, and you know, Samuel said, well, who, who's this? Well, that's King Agag. I brought him back. Agag is happy. He lived. Hey, hey, Samuel, how you doing? And Samuel said, did the Lord not tell you to completely, utterly destroy the Amalekites? And you brought him back? And Samuel himself takes a sword and chops the man into pieces. Samuel wanted no part of the disobedience of Saul on him. He had no choice but to kill the man in the presence of the king and to drive the point home how much you've sinned against the Lord. Now, uh, now we move forward about 600 years. And we have this character, Haman, who's of the same bloodline as King Agag. And now he is seeking to exterminate the Jews. Why did God, it's so wrong for God to say, I'm going to utterly destroy Amalek. I'm going to take them out. And he told King, he said, Saul, he said, hey, men, women, and children need to die. Destroy all of them. And we go, that is so cruel. God is so harsh. There's no reason to kill a child. No. God didn't know what was going to happen 600 years later when Haman would be raised up under the Persian king and he would come to a day where he would say, we are going to completely exterminate the Jews. You don't think God knew what he was doing back then? Had Saul obeyed the Lord, Haman wouldn't exist. All of a sudden, God's not so harsh, is he? He's trying to save the people who carry his name to this earth, to all the people of the earth, who show of his greatness. The Jews were given that task. They were the least, and God chose the least in order that they might show the greatness of God. If he had chosen the strongest army, the, tr the strongest tribe, the strongest nation, then you would have gone, well, that was that nation. They were just so powerful. They just, nobody could stop them. No, he chose the Jews to take out all the others. And for the people to look at them and go, how'd they do that? Well, it's their God that they worship. God gets the glory. But the Jews didn't follow through with that, did they? And so God here is like, now we're, we're suffering, but I still, I'm still going to use Saul's disobedience 
and I'm going to use this man Haman, knowing that Haman in his heart, what he would do, because God has foreknowledge, he knew he would rise up to exterminate the Jews. God's letting this rise. God's at work, church. Right now, it doesn't look good for the Jews, okay, under this Persian government. But, but we're not done with the story yet. God always sees what is out in front of us. He's an everlasting God because he is aware of all things. Even the secret things that hide in the crevices of our hearts, God sees it. God knows and he uses whatever means necessary to protect us, to provide for us, for one purpose, for his glory. God's protection of me is not just for me. That is a very narcissistic, selfish thought process that would bring you to the point of thinking that somehow God just wants to bless you for you. And that's what, if you look at maybe a, you know, a health and wealth gospel, that's what it's about. That's not biblical. It's not true. The truth is God blesses us that he might use us for his glory. Okay? So now turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. <coughs> I've heard this so many times in my life. And I got to be honest, there was a season in my life when I was young that I said the same thing. So I'm not, no better than the people that I see doing it now. Don't think that I'm somehow special or better. You know I'm not special. So why did I even say that? Uh, you guys know me better than anybody. Um, and there are people watching live stream. You've said it. I mean, we've all said these things. But look, look at this. This is interesting to me. Um, we'll, we'll, make, we'll, we'll take a situation where God's trying to drill down to the truth of something in your life that he might help you understand and grow in, okay? But then somebody comes along and says, oh, brother, don't, don't, don't worry about that. He has a hope and a future for you. That's a quote from Jeremiah. Let me give it to you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when, or actually, let's, let's, look at, uh, let's look at verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we, we read that, and so everybody, that's the tagline. That's what people use. That's their tag. When they see somebody struggling through something, no, no, God has a hope and a future for you. He knows the plans that he has for you. Do you understand? Scott came up with a great word this week and it shared with me, and I thought it was perfect. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's this thing called exegesis, and there's another thing called eisegesis. Biblically speaking, exegesis is when you take or you exit from the Bible what's in the Bible. You exit the truth. You use it. You take it out of the Bible. Exit. Eisegesis is when you put into the Bible what isn't in the Bible. Like this passage. We use it for our own purposes. Scott calls it, what is it, Scott? Narcissus. <laughs> isn't that good? That is really good. You're, you're using it for you. Making this passage about you. That passage is very specific. Let's go back and look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This is a specific word for a specific per, uh, people at a specific time. 
He's talking about Israel that he has sent off into Babylonian captivity, and he's telling them, I'm go- I've not forgotten the promises that I made to Israel. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He's saying, you're going to so change while you're in captivity that you're going to be hungry for me again when you return. And I'm going to give you the promises that I originally gave you. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is a specific word about Israel. You cannot commit narcissism and make it about you or make it about your friend. Now, what you can do is properly give understanding to the person and say, you know, remember back when God sent the Israelites into captivity and then as he was bringing them back, he said to them, I've not forgotten you. You're my people, Israel, and I have a hope and a future for you. I have plans to prosper you. God promised Israel that. And guess what? We are God's children. And so God has given us promises as well. And we should walk in those promises. And when we do, we experience the goodness of God in those promises. Now that's an accurate way of handling that passage. But to just come up to somebody and say, hey, don't worry about that. God has a hope and a future. No, 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 no. You're, 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 you're committing exegesis. You're taking, or eisegesis. You're putting into a text what's not there. Stop it. And that, that's exactly the way Saul was, and that's exactly the way Haman is conducting himself. He's creating his own way. And this is the temptation to Mordecai. Give in, bow down. Mordecai's like, no, I'm going to stand on the truth of what I know about God. I'm not going to give in to it. Okay? So God always goes before us in his purposes. And now we also need to understand more about what I said earlier regarding Amalek being a type of our flesh. A, a type of, in the Old Testament, is a picture of. It's an illustration of something else. Okay, uh, Egypt was a picture of bondage, sinful bondage. Okay, Crossing the Jordan was a symbol of being transformed and saved by God. These are types of, okay? This is another type of, that Amalek is a type of our flesh today. Uh, it's, it's when we live after the flesh, we're living like the Amalekites. According to Scripture, God has ordered that our flesh be put to death. Don't give, don't give root, don't give place for your flesh to live. This whole idea of covering up your sin and going to church and looking the part, but knowing that you have ill in your heart towards a brother or sister, God's not winking at that. That is a serious problem. That's an act of rebellion for you to go to church and not having made things right with that person. Okay, that, that's a big deal. And, 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 and what you did when you did that, you, you were acting out of the flesh. The Spirit of God would never lead you to do that. The flesh would. My flesh leads, tries to lead me in the wrong direction every day, all through the day. You're no different. 
And so Romans 8.13, listen to this, Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you allow the Amalekites to live, they're going to destroy you. They're out to kill you. That's why God said, take them out. That's why God says, kill flesh. Don't give the flesh life. Put it to death. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you are truly saved, you are in Christ. You've been set free from the bondage of sin. You've been set free from the penalty of sin. You've been set free from the power of sin. You don't have to sin now. Don't give sin a root in your life. I think sometimes we need to be reminded that God doesn't have a plan to reform our flesh. Some of us hold on to the flesh like somehow God's still working in my flesh. He's going to finally, before I die, He's going to have my flesh believing. No, your flesh will never believe in Jesus. Your flesh is living for flesh. That's why God says, kill it. And that's interesting. God said, you need to kill it. You don't want God to kill it. Believe me. You need to take care of that. You need to deny the flesh. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus daily. Amen? This is some hard truth, isn't it? So Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's what Paul said. So through the cross of Christ, God's provided a way of escape out of my flesh. I don't have to live by the flesh. I'm still clothed in flesh. I'm still tempted every day by flesh, but I don't have to give in to flesh. Amen? That's the beauty of it. Now, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, which is a passage that we all know, we've heard, but I'm not sure we know the whole verse. Let me give it to you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That would be my, myself, my old man, the flesh. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, here it is, who loved me and gave himself for me. Why would I want to crucify the flesh? Because Jesus loved me and gave me a new life, better than the life of the flesh. So the truth is, God has ordered your flesh to be put to death, crucified, reckon it to be dead, give no place to it. If you're like Saul, uh, and you fail to obey the commands of the Lord, that flesh in you will destroy you. What the flesh does on a daily basis to many Christians, because they feed the flesh, that flesh hinders the sweetness of the relationship that God wants with them. I didn't say it causes them to not be a Christian. I said they're not victorious Christians. They're not joyful Christians. Because they're being ruled not by Christ, but by the flesh. It hinders. If you are committing an act of sin, that's not when you want to hang out with God. He's the last one you want to be around. If, if, if you're making stupid decisions, you're not looking to hang out with people who are wise. You want to hang out with stupid people. So you can do stupid things. That's the reality. But God says, put that to death. Don't walk in it. 
kill it. Start hanging out with people who are also committed to put it to death, who have struggles like you do, who are tempted like you're tempted, but their desire in their heart is to be faithful to God. You, you get with them. That's the group to hang out with. You want to be able to share with them your struggle, just like they're sharing with you their struggle. Now you've got a real friend. You're in this together. The Bible says a cord of three cannot easily be broken. You get three people together who really desire the same thing, to, to know God, to walk in God, to crucify the flesh. My goodness, what you can accomplish. And you're less likely to fall as if you were alone. Christianity was never created to be a solo sport. That's why God created the only institution on the earth that God created and is building to this day. The only institution is the church. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Every other human institution will fall apart. God's created the church, which is people, to be in relationship holding each other up in prayer, confessing their sins to one another, finding strength in God, studying the word, worshiping God with song and other ways. That's, that's the only hope you have against the flesh. If you're an island over here, you're a Christian that's over here to the side, and you just show up on Sunday morning, sneak in and sneak out, and you don't have a relationship with people in the church, you're, miss, you're, you're trying to fight the flesh and the world alone, you're not going to make it. And you're never going to know the joy unspeakable, the fullness of glory of having a real relationship with God. Because you're short-circuiting that by your sinfulness. You can't want to be with God and be with sin at the same time. One has to go. Amen? I, I hope this is striking all of us in some way, shape, or form. It is striking me. It's hitting me. God is, God's word is so, so good. So getting back, we haven't even gotten to verse 3 yet. And we're at the bottom of the hour. So we're not going to go any further. We're going to stop right here, and we'll come back. Isn't that terrible? A preacher who can't get past three, uh, two verses. There's just so much in the word of God. The more I studied today, the more things opened up, and God's like, why are you so quick to get to the end of the chapter? It's a short chapter, by the way. This chapter's, well, how many verses? Like 14 verses? I don't know. Yeah, 15, 16, 15 verses. But that's not the goal here. The goal is a simple and pure devotion to Christ. Bite off a piece of the truth and then chew it. And by the way, if you read what we've studied so far tonight, you're going to go, there ain't a whole lot there. We've studied more than two verses. I'm just being facetious. But we still have a lot more to go. And we're not going to take time to go there tonight. So we'll pick up where we left off next week, okay? Any questions that you have? Uh, comments that you might have? Uh, does, this, does this hit home? Let me know. D does this hit home in any of you? Okay. Bob? Bob? Yeah, had Saul well, taken him out? And, or, <laughs> before then. 
Okay, back when God spoke to Moses? Yeah. Um, it's amazing how our, our sinful decisions play on other people's lives, and we don't, we don't realize it. We only look at our sinfulness for how it affects us. Well, it's only hurting me. It's not hurting them. So. Yeah, no, I, I got what you said. Yes. Anybody else have a thought or a comment? A question? If not, why don't we close in prayer tonight and ask the Lord to just bless us as we go home, but also keep us aware of what we're hearing tonight. Look, we are educated above our obedience as Christians. We've heard so many sermons, but are we living out what we've learned? That's the question. Father, tonight we're thankful that we have the word and that we can study the word <coughs> every single day and throughout the day. And you want us to be in the word. You want us to sit under sermons. You want us to sit under godly teaching. You want us to know the truth of the word of God. But you also equally want us to, to let it come through our lives where we live what we know to be true. And so, God, as we leave tonight, that's the, that's the prayer in the room is that each of us would subjectively now listen to your voice and we would, we would leave knowing that God is trying to teach me these things so that I can live in freedom and live honestly before him. So, Lord, let it play out for each of us that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church. We'll pick up next week where we left off and, and uh, let the Lord kind of help us here.